All right, open your Bibles to Revelation. Revelation chapter number 15. So we continue on our journey through this great book of the Bible. Revelation chapter number 15. One more time, I'd like to remind you that, as I've said before, I believe there are four separate accounts of the tribulation given in the book of Revelation, and this chapter begins the fourth and the final account of the tribulation period. Uh, This section ends with chapter number 19. So this chapter then introduces chapter 16. This is the beginning of the seven last plagues of the tribulation. It's the last glimpse of mercy before God's sword of judgment falls upon the earth. Beginning in verse number 1, our attention is turned to the sign, a word that we've heard before. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Seven angels having the seven last plagues, and in them is filled up the wrath of God. You remember in chapter number 12, we saw the sign of the woman and spoke about that being Israel. We also saw the sign of the great red dragon, which was Satan. And here we see another sign that is simply described as being great and marvelous. And he tells us that the sign has to do with the seven last plagues. And this is in which the wrath of God is filled up. As I was sitting there and thinking about this verse A verse from the book of Zephaniah comes to mind, and you need not turn there unless you just want to, but you might want to jot it down. Chapter 3 and verse number 8 says, Therefore wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey. For my determination is to gather the nations that I may assemble the kingdoms, to pour upon them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger. For all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. And that's what we are about to see. You remember that in Second Peter chapter number 3, it reminds us that God is long-suffering. Aren't you glad? He's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But I want you to notice that these procrastinating Christ-rejectors, who day after day after day go on rejecting Him, we're told here that as they linger, they are treasuring up the wrath of God. In other words, it's building up even more and more and more. And you read in Romans chapter number 2 and verse 4 and 5 of those who treasure up the wrath of God against the day of wrath. The whole point of that is that hell will be worse for some than it will for others. 
judgment will be more severe upon some than it will for others. The Lord said back in Luke chapter number 12 as he dealt with this matter of judgment and punishment in chapter number 12 and verse number 47, And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes, for unto whomsoever much is given of him shall much be required. To whom men have committed much of him, they will ask the more. That's why I've often said that it's actually better for someone in a heathen land to never hear the gospel and die and go to hell than it is for a missionary to go there and to give them the gospel and for them to reject it. All men have some sense of God. And this gets beyond our realm of understanding. But we believe that as a person responds to the light they have, that God gives them more. Therefore, no one can accuse God of being unjust in that there are those that do not hear the gospel that are lost. You, you can't blame God for that. Man is always the one that gets the blame. But think about those here in America. Those that have heard the gospel again and again and again. They've had one opportunity after another. And for them to die without Christ as their Savior, hell will be much more terrible than it will for some people over there that never had the same opportunity. You've probably heard people say, well, you know, hell is hell, you know. And in fact, I remember years ago, uh, I think it was Bob Harrington, the chaplain of Bourbon Street, as he called himself, until he got involved in some things on Bourbon Street. But uh, he had a cute little saying about, you know, being afraid of offending people and you know, where are you going to send them, to hell number one or hell number two? You know, hell is hell. It doesn't make any difference. Well, let me tell you, it does make a difference. There's going to be greater punishment for some. And by the way, and we're not going to go into it, there are different degrees of glory in heaven. A lot of folks have the silly notion, well, I'm going to heaven and heaven is heaven and so that's good enough for me. Well, let me tell you, it's not good enough for me. It shouldn't be good enough for you. Because there are rewards to be gained in heaven. There are different degrees of, uh, of rewards and glory in heaven. I, boy, I, I wish I hadn't got off on that because it's one of those things I get to talking about. And I can't hardly stop, you know, when you start thinking about, as Paul said, as one star differs from the other, even so, you know, God's people are the ones going to differ from the other in glory. It makes a difference. Well, folks, listen, it makes a difference when we live in a land like America and have all of these opportunities and reject it because we are doing what? We are treasuring up wrath against wrath. In other words, we're piling up the wrath of God on top of itself, making things worse for us. So this sign then has to do uh, with the seven, the seven uh, last plagues that are going to come up on the earth. Remember, this is during the tribulation. Now, 
we come to verse number 2, and our attention is turned to the sea. He says, And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. Now we've talked about this before, but let me remind you. Notice as he, as he sees what appears to be a sea of glass. Notice the words, as it were. That tells us this is not a literal sea. Now, the Bible does speak about the sea in a literal fashion. But in this instance, he's speaking about something that is as a sea of glass. That is a very important factor because it tells us that although we take the Bible literally, that we understand that there are figures of speech. And, and so we, we've got to understand that. Jesus says, you know, I am the door, I am the water. We understand that is a, a figure of speech. He's using symbolic language. Well, here John sees this sea of glass, and unlike the sea mentioned back in chapter number 4, notice this sea is mingled with fire. Fire in the Bible always denotes judgment. And the saints who were victorious over the beast, and that, that's a great thought, amen, because sometimes we get it in our mind, you know, life is just too tough, things are just too hard, too difficult, I just can't live a godly life. Well, during this time, when it's the worst time ever on earth, these people got the victory over the beast, and notice that they are standing on the sea. This is a picture of triumph on their part. As the judgment is poured out upon the nations, this is a beautiful picture of victory for those that have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful Savior He is, not only that He saves us and takes us to heaven, but He enables us. Amen? According to the power, what? Working in you. There in Ephesians chapter number 3 and verse number 20. That power that's working in us, that's the power that raised up Jesus from the dead. That's the power that not only created the universe, but continues to control the universe. And that power is at work in every child of God. And as we yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit, we are enabled. He is our enabler. A lot of people think about the Holy Spirit only as our comforter in the sense of consolation. And the Bible uses that word comforter in reference to the Holy Spirit. But, but in our modern day language, the word helper actually better describes his work. One that is called alongside of to help. He's the paraclete, the divine paraclete, the helper, the one who is at our side to help us in our difficulties. And so here in this picture, and I think it's wonderful that God saw the need of inserting this as he's going to show all of the, all of the desolation and the judgment and the suffering upon the earth. He gives us a glimpse of the fact that the saints, the saints that overcome the beast, the saints that overcome the Antichrist, they are walking on the water, as it were. I mean, they have the problem where? Under their feet. So, verse number three, now he moves from the sign in the sea to the song in verse three and verse number four. 
He says in verse number 3, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy, and all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made Manifest. Now, notice there are two songs mentioned here. The first song, he says, is the song of Moses. Actually, Moses had two songs. The first one is back over in the book of Exodus, chapter number 15. It's a song of deliverance where God brought them up out of the land of Egypt. God set them free. And Moses wrote this song at that time, celebrating their deliverance from Egyptian bondage. But when you come to Deuteronomy chapter number 13, there is another song composed by Moses. And that song was written for the purpose of encouraging the people to worship and to serve God. So whenever it says they sing the song of Moses, I don't know whether it means the first or the second or both, and it really doesn't make any difference. The point is still the same. You know, which particular song they sang doesn't matter because both of them, in essence, are songs of deliverance. Now, we just looked at this picture of the saints being triumphant over the troubles and the trials of this world. They're walking, they're walking as it were on top of the sea that is mingled with fire. They have gotten the victory over the beast and, 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 and notice what happens here. Immediately our attention is called to that of praising God, thanking God, a song of deliverance. I'll tell you, if God never did anything but save you, it ought to be reason for you to sing the songs of Zion. I mean, we've got a good reason to uh, open our mouths and to lift our voice and to sing His praises. So, they sang the song of Moses, but that's not all they sang. It says, and also the song of the Lamb. Now you say, well, what is that? Well, it's in Revelation chapter number 5, and we've already considered that. The song of the Lamb, where he talks about, worthy art thou. And again and again and again, and notice the emphasis is all entirely upon the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that he is worthy. So as the song of Moses is the song of physical deliverance. The song of the Lamb has to do with our spiritual deliverance. And uh, notice the works of God mentioned here in verse number 3. Notice what he says, because all through here he is, is they're singing this and, and anticipating the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. The works of God are great and marvelous, Verse number 3, the ways of God are just and true, and the worship of God, in verse number 4, notice the worship of God comes from all nations. Now, I want you to take notice of the fact that no one here is complaining or criticizing. Remember, these are the same people that have come out of great tribulation. These are the same people that have suffered the horrors of destruction, and yet they do that evidently without any animosity. There's no bitterness on their part. They've been mistreated, and yet they what? They have only praise 
for God. I'll guarantee you, people are going to mistreat you. People are going to abuse you. Life's not always going to be fair. And we need, we need to be mindful of what, what Jesus did for us. I, I started to send out a little, uh, short morning manna that had to do entirely with that, how you and I can conquer criticism. And I'll tell you, the best way in the world to do it is just get your focus on Calvary. I might use that sometime this week because it, it's really a helpful thought that if we'll just think about Calvary and think about what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, and, and if we do that, we ought to come to the conclusion we don't have anything to complain about. You know, whenever a man like Paul says, speaks of himself as being the chief of sinners, how are you going to offend a guy like that? I mean, he admitted, I'm the chief of sinners. I mean, are you going to offend him by saying, Paul, you're sure not perfect? Well, he never thought that. That's not offending him at all. You're just speaking the truth. Well, Paul, you know, you could be better. You could do more. Well, Paul was very much aware of that fact. So one of the ways that, that we cope with the injustices that we, that we face in this life is to be mindful of what the Lord has done. And notice, we have this picture of deliverance, and immediately after that, we have this song of praise. But the interesting part here is that notice it comes from all nations. All nations have only praise for the Lord. I, this is amazing to me because it seems so impossible, right? When we think about the present condition of the world, when we think about the past history of the world, there has never been a time in the history of this world that this has happened. Never been a time. You know, we even talk about America being a Christian nation. And, and by the way, America has never been a Christian nation in the sense that the majority of the population is made up of Christians. It's never really been that way at all. We've been a Christian nation only in the sense that it was founded upon, you know, the Christian principles. And that we refer to it as a Christian nation. But the difference is there was a time here in America where the credibility of Christians was such that that others had confidence in us. And in other words... Whether they agreed with you or not, they admitted that you were probably right, that this was really the best way to live, and they, you know, they followed along. But we're just talking about America. We've never been to get able to get everybody in America on board for Christ. Amen. And certainly we've never been able to convert a lot of the heathen nations, the different religions, and so on and so forth. And think about it, in that day, all nations, all nations shall recognize Him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. That time is coming. It's just a matter of time. And so, you know, we, we keep thinking everything's going to end in a horrible, terrible defeat and what have you. But if we really read the whole book, we see that it, it ends in glorious victory. God is determined to glorify Himself, and He's going to get it done. It's just, it just got to happen in His time. Now, we come to verse number 5, and on down through the end of the chapter. 
And here our attention is focused on seven angels. Seven angels. Notice, first of all, the vision, and then we'll look at the vials. Verse 5 and 6, notice the vision. And after that, I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. Now notice the place and the people. The place in this vision is the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven. That would speak about the literal holy of holies. Remember in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple, the Holy of Holies was that smaller place within where the ark of God resided. The ark of God represented the presence of God. By virtue of the people having that ark there in their presence, it was indicative of the fact that God is present with His people. And they could rejoice in that fact. And you'll remember that God even let that be known in what is called the Shekinah glory. In other words, there was a a cloud that hovered above uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And so God manifested Himself. If you go back and look at the dedication service of the tabernacle and later the dedication service of the temple... In both instances, the glory of God filled the building to the extent, I mean, that it literally drove the people out. When God comes in in His glory, uh, they had to, to leave out of there because man is imperfect and God is perfect. In other words, it's symbolic of God taking over. And by the way, and we don't have time to explore the, all of the thoughts regarding this, but if you read Acts chapter number 2, you'll see that the same thing happened in the modern-day New Testament tabernacle, which is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. As they were gathered together in the upper room, and what happened? God again manifested Himself in a visible way, showing, showing that He was in the midst of His people, and showing that this, the church, is His dwelling place. But here, notice here, we're talking about the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven. And so we're given a glimpse of what's going on in heaven. And the wonderful thing is that we have access to that place through the Lord Jesus Christ. Access to God. Isn't that great? To think about having direct assets, uh, access to God, you don't need to go through me or the Pope or a preacher. You can go directly to God because of the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice the people, the people in this vision, and they're described in verse number 6 as angels. That is to say, they are seven messengers. And they, they are clothed in priestly garments as though they were preparing for a sacrifice. And then notice verse 7 and 8. Our attention is turned from the vision to the vials. And it says, And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials, 
full of the wrath of God who liveth forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. That word vials means bowls. We're talking about a, a bowl, a, a bowl of God's wrath being poured out upon the earth. And notice here it says the temple filled with the smoke which again is a reference to what I was talking about, God manifesting His presence as in the tabernacle and the temple and in the Lord's place, signifying that this is His dwelling place. Now, what we need to remember is in that day as the tribulation comes to a close and these seven last plagues are poured out upon the earth, it's as though God is picturing to us that it's that time appointed when He's going to take over. You've heard me say over and over again that everything that happens is either caused by God or allowed by God. God allows a lot of things to happen that are bad. God allows a lot of things to happen that are wrong. God allows presently sin to happen, right? God allows all of this. But the day is coming where God is going to pour out His wrath upon every lawbreaker, every Christ-rejecter. I thought long and hard this afternoon about whether or not I ought to just move right on into chapter number 16. And uh, we're going to see between here and chapter 19... These seven vials or bowls being poured out. And instead of doing that, I just, I just want to just give you a quick glimpse of what you'll see in chapter number 16. In verse number 1, then the first vial that is poured out, men are smitten with terrible, horrible sores all over their body. A plague of sores. In verse number 3, when the second vial is poured out, it's poured out upon the sea. And he tells us the sea becomes as blood, and the life in the sea dies. And then in verse 4 through 7, the next vial is poured out upon the fresh water. Now get the picture. These people are tormented, as it were, with all of these putrefying, runny sores all over their body, and now there is no fresh water. There is no pure water. And then we come to verse number 8 and 9, and the fourth vial is poured out upon the sun. And the intensity of the sun's heat is increased. And and, and get the picture of it, scorching men. We're talking about those that already have these putrefying runny sores all over their body. They're already suffering. There is no pure water that they can use to find relief. And now the sun is so hot, it's literally scorching them, and there's no relief to be found. And then in verse number 10 and 11, the fifth vial is poured out upon the seat of the beast. You mark it down, the devil's going to get his eventually. 
It's just a matter of time. Then in verse number 12 through 16, we see the vial poured out upon the great river Euphrates. And when it happens, Euphrates is dried up, preparing the way of the kings of the east. And we can debate whether that's China or Japan or China and Japan, but it's talking about, of course, nations uh, coming from the east that's going to come out, as it were, against Jerusalem, against God's people, and they're going to be gathered in a place called Armageddon. Well, you already know a little about that, don't you? It's God gathering them together as He pours out this sixth vial upon the Euphrates. But then in verse 17, and through the remainder of the chapter, it talks about Him pouring out the vial, the seventh vial, into the air. Remember, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. And here, here the vial is poured out as it were in the air. What's happening here? We're going to look at this in more detail, but here's what's happening. Because when we get to chapter 17 and 18, we see that Babylon is destroyed. But understand that here it says, though God is using all of these things to bring together all of these vile, sinful nations of the earth that will literally do battle against the Lord and lose. Aren't you glad you're on the winning side? Aren't you glad that you know of a certainty how this is all going to end? Sometimes we look around and we think about, my, I can remember being back when I, in, in grade school, and many of you remember, you know, we I had the the bomb shelter warnings and what have you, and even back then in the late 40s, you know, people were digging bomb shelters. I mean, we we thought for certain that that there's going to be another terrible war, and this time it's going to be nuclear. And and naturally, people were scared to death digging bomb shelters way back then. And we had the drills where we'd hide under the desk. Like that was really going to do something. Yeah, get, you know, get in a tough position under your desk. <laughs> but we, we stop and think about the condition that the world is in today. And, and of course, you know, there, there are those, you know, that, uh, the, the green tree crowd, you know, and, uh, they try to frighten us and tell us we're going to destroy the earth because we don't take care of the environment. And then there are the others that tell us, you know, that it's going to all end in a ball of fire. We're going to blow ourselves up. You just remember this. Regardless of what happens today or tomorrow, regardless, this earth is going to continue on for at least 1,007 years. Don't ever forget that. After the seven-year tribulation period, there's going to be a thousand-year reign here on this earth. Boy, that's something to look forward to. Amen? We need not be depressed and, you know, and critical of the way God's running His ship because He's the captain that's never lost a battle. And in the end, ultimately, we're going to see all of this coming together and all of those nations gathered there as God pours out His fury upon them. So you leave here encouraged tonight. Lord willing, next week, 
uh, well, two weeks from tonight, we have a missionary next Sunday night. But two weeks from tonight, we'll pick up in chapter number uh, 16, and we'll look at this in more detail. And then in chapters 18 and 19, we're going to consider, as he talks about the destruction of Babylon and and we may have we may have a supplementary lesson somewhere in there just about Babylon. If you've never studied Babylon, not just the city of Babylon, but what Babylon represents. And we're going to be talking about that. There's some very interesting and important things that you need to think about. And we're going to look at that, Lord willing, later on. Thank you for being here, and we thank the Lord for adding to the church this morning a, a brand new family, and who, who knows what God's going to do. Amen. So let's all stand together, and Tim, why don't you come and lead us in a verse of a song, and uh, it might be God's still not through today. We'll just see. Amen. <laughs> 